0: This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org.
1: The scripture reading this morning is Isaiah 61, and this is found on page 620 in the Bible in your pew. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness." As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations.
0: Good morning, everybody. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here, and if I haven't met you yet, or if you're new, or if you're not new, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for being here. Um, Do me a favor and go ahead and turn in those Bibles in front of you to Luke chapter 4. It is page 859 in the Bibles in your pews. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went down to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Notice something that commentators point out here, that Jesus didn't read the next line in this moment. Notice where he stopped. He didn't read the second half of verse 2. Verse 2 says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor from Isaiah 61 and to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. And The reason I'm starting here is because the day of the Lord's vengeance isn't here yet. That's not the ministry of Jesus that we read about in the Gospels, but that day of vengeance will come just like these verses say that it will. Jesus has been anointed and he accepted two kind of overarching tasks to accomplish. He He has the task of the year of the Lord's favor and the second, the day of vengeance. It's these two assignments that refer and give attention to Jesus' ministry in his first coming and then what's going to happen at his second coming when no one expects it. But right now, right now, church, this is the year of the Lord's favor. That's where we live. We're people who are living in the work that Jesus initiated at his first coming. So, Let's pray, and then we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, your word, your words are not suggestions waiting for our approval or our, our acceptance. The news that you bring is not a perspective that we can or cannot adopt. Your word explains reality to us. Your word makes the world out there understandable at all. And your word shows us what's really going on inside the world that's in our hearts. So Father, you're clear in your book. You say that you're here. You say that you're with us. You say you're going to win. Even right now, you're winning. So awaken faith today. Awaken courage today. Awaken our souls to your work so that we wouldn't lose heart. Every single circumstance that's difficult in our lives is competing to get us to believe that you're not working, to get us to believe that you're not here, to get us to believe that this isn't the year of the Lord's favor and that you're not here to set liberty to the captives. And that's not true. So right now, Lord, would you humble us? Would you fill us with faith? The liturgy this morning overlaps with my prayer. My only consolation in life and death is that my life is not my own. It belongs to you. Our lives aren't even about us. They're about you. So give us eyes of faith to see, ears of faith to hear, and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. So do me a favor again and open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11, which is page 575 in in the Bibles in your seats or in your pews. Page 575, starting in verse 2, I'm going to read verse 2 to 5. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, All the way back in chapter 11, we were seeing the mission and ministry of the Spirit resting on the anointed servant. Way back in chapter 11, we see the cohesive mission of this servant being described both the year of the Lord's favor and this day of vengeance. This book has been beating the same drum for 60 plus chapters and only an incomprehensibly gracious God would devote his power and strength to come after people like us, people like these people over and over and over again. We've been soaking in 60 chapters of God's unwavering commitment to make a way, to make a highway way, one of mercy and forgiveness and love. So what we read about today is Jesus' ministry of transformation, Jesus's ministry of wholesale reorientation, Jesus's ministry of the upside down kingdom of God that he announced and ushered in, in the gospels. If you want to know what Jesus came for, what did Jesus come to do? We get to read about it in these 11 verses today. So we're going to answer two big questions. We're going to ask the question, what's the, Messiah, what's the anointed Messiah to, sorry, what's the Messiah anointed to accomplish, right? Anointed to do, what's, what's he doing? And what are the results of that work? Another way to say it is, what's Jesus up to and what does that mean for us? What's Jesus up to, what's he doing and what does that mean for us? So first, what's the anointed servant doing? And let's start by saying that all the accomplishments of Jesus That we read about here, they assume certain realities about the world. All his actions and solutions, his ministry needs needy people to accomplish it. The creature, you and me, need a creator God to do something. We need God to break into our lives and do something. We need something from the outside to break into our hearts and our lives and. Make change, right? To transform us. These phrases need to be explained. If the Messiah is anointed to bring liberty to the captives, then we should be asking captives of what? Captives to who? If the Messiah is anointing and he's anointed to bring good news to the poor, then we should be asking poor how? Right? Since the Messiah is sent to bind up the brokenhearted, then we should be asking who says things are broken at all? If the Messiah is coming to free people who are bound, then we should be asking bound how? By what? By whom? Because if we don't have answers to these questions, then we're kind of out of luck. If we don't have a good answer to this, then what good does Isaiah 61 do for us? If we don't know who the brokenhearted is who the captives are who the bound up are if we don't know who's in prison who's mourning who has a faint spirit then we then can't we just read isaiah 61 and finish and kind of say so what so why should isaiah 61 matter for us why should it matter to me or is Jesus going to free every single person from every single chain that they're in right now? Or is every broken heart going to be healed right now? Is every person who mourns going to be comforted in this instant? Not, not exactly, right? What the Messiah is anointed to do is deeper than breaking physical chains. What the Messiah is anointed to do is more powerful than what physical prisons can do. What the Messiah is anointed to accomplish is more thorough and way more needed than freedom from physical captivity. The Messiah is anointed to transform everything. The picture here is for an exiled people. The scene and background and context here is one where a people, right? A real group of human beings in history have been ripped out of their homes and sent into exile in another nation to be the slaves of this foreign people. There's a lot of bad news all over the place for the people of God. There's a lot of reasons to believe that nothing will ever change. That nothing will ever get better. That no one will ever come to rescue them. The outlook for these exiled people is bleak. And that's the point. This is the picture of you and me. This is the picture of our captivity. This is how bleak our prison is aside from the anointed Messiah. So let's spend a few minutes this morning searching our hearts and asking the spirit of God to apply the gospel to new places that we're still chained up. Let's ask the spirit of God to open our eyes to things that we showed up today still blind to, blind to about ourselves, right? The Spirit of God doesn't convict us about other people's sin. It convicts us about our own sin and reveals to us our own chains and our own prisons and our own captivity. So Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So you, you and I may never experience physical slavery, but the Bible says we're all slaves to something much worse than that. Romans 6 says, you're a slave to the one that you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. 2 Peter 2.19 says, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. What is overcoming you right now, Today? Is it food, or money, or drugs, or sex, or approval from other people? Is it, is it something like, uh, like pressure from the outside? If it's overcoming you, then you've been enslaved to it. Galatians 4.3 says that at one time we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And verse 8 says, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. And the writer of Hebrews goes a step further when he instructs us to throw off anything that hinders us or anything that weighs us down along with all sin in our lives. So we don't have to guess. The New Testament's clear that we're the ones that need good news. We are the poor We're the ones in bondage. We're the ones held captive by sinful lusts, sinful desires. We're the ones that need liberty because apart from the Messiah, our situation is hopeless. And I want to stop here and ask, what do you find yourself trapped by this morning? In your marriage, are you stuck in patterns of conflict or avoidance? Are you entangled in something that you can't get out of? Where do you need liberty right now, today? Where are you bound up? What are you obeying? What are you thinking about constantly? Whose approval are you seeking? What are you captive to? What are you imprisoned to? Are you constantly trying to hoard up money? Are you constantly trying to look better? To do better? To be better so that others will like you? Are you constantly wanting something else, something new? Are you angry? Are you bitter? Do you find yourself kind of like twisted up and you need to be set free? Do you find yourself trying to cope with life with chocolate or shopping or alcohol? Do you find yourself saying, if I only had the right husband, or if I only had the right wife, or the right kids, or the right pastors, or the right friends, then everything would finally be how it's supposed to be. Then finally I'd be okay and everything would be right. The things we want most in this life become things that capture us. The money, the prestige, the comfort, the house, the neighborhood, the right school, the pedigree, the reputation, the popularity, the acceptance into the right in-group. It's all the same. Our hearts run after these kind of things instead of the living God. And Jesus changes that. He sets us free from all of those things. He sets us free from everything. Free. Truly free. Free from approval, free from judgment, free from the pressures of social media, free from sin, free from the fear of man, free from the fear of death, truly free. Acts 13, 38 and 39 say, let it be known to you therefore brothers that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything. Everything. Freed from everything, everything in which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The word every believer and every unbeliever needs to hear today is that we need to be set free again. We need to be set free more. And we need to be set free in deeper ways today. So that we don't find ourselves doing what the scriptures call submitting ourselves again to a yoke of slavery in Galatians 5.1. We need to see more of the traps and the hangups that are working against us. We need to become more aware of snares, more aware of chains that the world, our flesh and the devil have kind of sneaked up around our necks again. Because so easily we drift. So easily we drift back into a yoke of slavery. So easily we drift back into bondage. We coast back into anger and judgment and bitterness and haughtiness. We drift toward the trap of pride and self-sufficiency. We drift toward being entangled by things that only want to trick us. We drift into the affairs of life, and all of a sudden, we look at our own hearts, and they've been captured by something else again, captured by some sin or some idol. Something shiny gets all of our attention and distracts us from Jesus. In the first few verses of this chapter, we see what the anointed one is doing. You can see that the Messiah is anointed to bring good news to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to grant the oil of gladness and the garment of praise. We have freedom offered, beauty, comfort, gladness, worship. These are the things that the Messiah is making possible and the results are staggering. Right? Verses 4-9 to explain what this means for us and for these people. But if you read these few verses and you find yourself saying, Like, what in the world? What in the world are they talking about? I mean, if you find yourself saying, I'm not poor, I'm not bound by anything, I'm not trapped by anything, I'm not captured by anything, I'm not broken, I'm fine, I'm good. I'm not enslaved by anything. Actually, I'm pretty great. I have some really great friends and I have lots of them and most of them are lucky to have me. And if that's what you say when you hear these verses, man, I would invite you to reconsider. Jesus would invite you to reconsider this morning. The scriptures are clear that God created us and we said thanks, but no thanks. Even our hearts condemn us. They work against us. They accuse us. All of us know what it means to fall short even of our own standards of what we think we should be. We all know what it feels like to not be enough, to ache for something more in this life, all of us know what it means to hurt other people. All of us know what it means to lie and cheat and steal because we love ourselves the most. All of us know what, that God's real, and without Jesus, we cannot know him. The invitation today is to believe. This Messiah will change your life, this anointed one will set you free. Free from the captivity of approval. Free from the captivity of proving yourself to other people. Free from sin. Free from bondage. Completely free. And he does more than that. He transforms you from the inside out. He transforms everything. In this chapter, we see transformation and restoration being two big, powerful results of the Messiah's work. We see covenant love and commitment. We see that God enjoys being our salvation. This is what the work of the Messiah means for us and for all of us who believe. These are the benefits of being the object of all of the work that the anointed one is accomplishing. Does that make sense? The Messiah isn't only setting captives free, but he's reordering and rearranging everything, both circumstances on the outside and our hearts on the inside. The Messiah's work means transformation. It means restoration. It means gathering enemies, gathering enemies and making them into colleagues and keeping covenant blessing. All this is possible because the anointed ones work. All this is possible because of what Jesus is doing. And it's all possible even in spite of the people's sin and idolatry. All of it's possible in spite of our own sin. These verses are proclaiming transformation. Read verse 3 with me. To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This is whole scale transformation. This is the business that God's in. Throughout the scripture, God chooses people that are not qualified for the mission he gives them. He transforms their lives. He transforms their character. He transforms their story. In these verses, the Messiah is sent to transform the ashes of devastation into the beauty of a wedding headdress. He's sent to transform the bitter tears of mourning over our own sin and weakness and failure into the sweet oil of joy and glad hearts. He transforms fainting into worship. And he makes these people into oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord and for the Lord, for his glory. God accomplishes all this transformation for his glory. The next few verses paint a picture of restoration. Verse 4 says, They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. I have a lot of friends. I have a lot of friends who have done home renovation and restoration projects. I am not one of those individuals, but I know that they exist. And I know that there's an invention called TV. And on this invention, they show things called shows. And, all, and there's a whole industry for this renovation and restoration business. There's a whole industry centered around the idea of restoring the beauty of something, right? Well, there's not, there's not a renovation or a restoration project that's too far gone for our Savior, Jesus Christ. There just isn't. I don't care if you are a house that's leaning, that has a shoddy foundation, or one that's gutted and is about to be left because it's condemned. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to the Messiah how broken down you are or how much baggage you bring to the equation. There's no job too big for him. And in fact... The more rusted, the more cracked, the more run down and deteriorated the project, the worse the worse it looks, the more glory he gets. That means you don't have to pretend anymore. That means you don't have to perform anymore. He sees everything. He already sees where you are. And we can be free from pretending. Free from acting like we have it all together, like everything's okay. We can be free from a shiny veneer or wearing masks or reading scripts that we want other people to believe about us. We can be free from all of that because the project he's doing on us is whole scale, top to bottom, inside out transformation. Let me be really clear. I want, I, want, I want to be really clear for, for the folks in this room that this applies to. If you think that you're a lost cause or that your life's a lost cause, I have two things to say. One thing is that you're not. You are not a lost cause and your life is not a lost cause. And the second thing is that you are exactly the kind of person that Jesus is hunting for, that he is looking for. You're exactly the kind of person that he delights to save and change and meet. You're exactly the kind of person that these verses are talking about. You're my kind of person. There's nothing he can't restore. There are no ruins too ancient for him to rebuild. There's no devastation that can't be reversed. And the Messiah makes a society, an entire society, out of people who at one time were enemies. In verses 5 to 7, the point is clear. The same nations that were oppressing Israel now become their co-workers. And Israel will be their priests. That's, that's touching on the point that Israel is going to be their, um, the, the pathway, the mediator, the tool that God uses to take the Messiah through Israel to the rest of the world. The whole relationship and dynamic between once enslaved Israel and their enslavers is completely changed. And it isn't reoriented the way that our vengeful hearts would want it to be reoriented. It's not reoriented where the oppressors have their necks on Israel. And we want to flip the script so that we can put our necks on the people that oppress us. That is not what happens here. They're co-laborers. They're friends. They're co-workers. Their relationship is completely reoriented. In fact, we see here that God's going to use Israel to bring his blessings to all the nations. All nations. This is work that only the Messiah can make possible. And we see in Jesus and the real life spreading of the gospel over the whole world and the spreading of it all over the whole earth, that this work is in process of being accomplished. This is the year of the Lord's favor. Through a Messiah that comes from Israel, we see the gospel expanding and spreading over all the earth. So nations that were enemies will become friends. Nations that were villains will become friends with nations that were victims and they'll live in society together. And it's this anointed Messiah that's going to make that happen. And the chapter closes with God reaffirming and re-promising his covenant to his people and an exultant, joyful Messiah that's happy about the work that he's been assigned to do. Read verse 8 with me. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. So for 60 chapters, we've seen the people of God sin. We've seen them fail and worship false gods. For 60 chapters, we've seen them distrust and disbelieve and deny the power of God. For 60 chapters, we've watched as God pursued and pursued and pursued his people in spite of their failure. They've gotten everything wrong and we've gotten everything wrong. They've failed in every possible way and so have we. They've taken all of God's kindness and blessing and grace and they've trashed it all over and over and over again. And what does God do but double down on his commitment to them? He won't give up. He doesn't quit ever. And he never, ever, ever breaks a promise. That's my translation of his covenant love. He never breaks a promise. All the promises that this Messiah is making in this chapter are the exact same promises that he's going to have to die in order to keep. Do you see that this morning? When this anointed Messiah says, the Spirit's upon me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open open the prisons, to set people free, to transform people's lives, to restore, to bless, to rearrange relationships, and to bring in foreign nations, he also had to be ripped and torn and hung from a cross in order to make good on all of these promises. Think about that. Jesus... Jesus, the eternal son of the living God, became poor so that he could preach good news to poor people. The the same Jesus as the eternal son of the living God. His heart was crushed so that he could bind up broken hearted people. Jesus allowed guards and soldiers to bind him up so that he could set liberty to the captives. Jesus drank gall so that we could know the oil of gladness. Jesus walked the road to Golgotha to make all these promises a reality for you and for me. And get this, he does it with joy. He does it with joy. I could barely get those words out of my mouth. Who would do that for somebody like me? Who would do that for these people as we've watched them over the last year? But it's true. It's true. The Messiah's work of salvation is a joy to him. Read verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. This is the last picture that we get in this chapter of rejoicing Savior being adorned in salvation and beauty. Hebrews 12 says that Christ endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. This joy. And the joy we see here is the glad work of God to keep his covenant and to stop at nothing to make a people for himself. We should be truly astonished by that. God's always, God's always accomplishing perfectly everything that he wants to do. And he's glad about it. Nobody is twisting his arm. God's glad in his work of salvation. And as we turn, as we turn to close today, I'm going to read kind of like a summary quote by Pastor Ray Ortland about this section of Isaiah. Isaiah sees our Messiah enjoying saving us. His influence has all the joy of a wedding celebration and all the fruitfulness of a garden sprouting with new life. He's been doing this for 2,000 years and he's only begun. Through Jesus Christ, God launched into this sad world an outpouring of joy that will leave the nations in awe. And on this very day in history, at this very moment in history, Jesus is on the move, doing God's saving will all over the world with joyful enthusiasm. Isn't that a cause big enough and bright enough to compel our allegiance? So if Jesus... If that picture compels your allegiance this morning, you're a Christian. And we invite you to celebrate that in just a minute by taking communion. The way that we do that here is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups are wine. The glassware is juice. We'll have a few different stations. We have one here to my right, one to my left. And then we have a gluten-free single-serve station right here in the center, middle, down here in the front. And we'll have one up in the balcony. And then we'll also have prayer ministers over here who would love to pray for you uh, if you'd like prayer this morning. But before you come, let me just say, Jesus' salvation is a joy is a joy for him to dispense. It's a joy for him to give. For the joy set before him, he climbed up onto the cross. For the joy set before him, he makes... All of these promises. He sets liberty to the captives. He preaches good news to the poor. If you find yourself in prison this morning in your heart, in your soul, in your circumstances, Jesus comes to set you free. And that's the salvation that's being proclaimed to us in this text. And in this morning, as we take communion, what we are doing is we are proclaiming his work to the watching world. We're proclaiming everything that he's done for us to the rest of the watching world. That's one of, the, um, one of the beautiful realities of taking communion every week is us recognizing, naming, embracing our own need again to be rescued, to be um, set free. So um, yeah, if you're a believer this morning, we invite you to come forward and take communion. And if you're not, man, we invite you to, to pray, maybe pray with somebody over here to my left, maybe um, maybe reconsider, even, even imagine what it would look like to believe this morning, maybe for the first time. But we, in, we invite you, we invite you to come down and take communion. I'm going to pray. The servers are going to come and come when you're ready. So, um, Jesus, your body. Your blood make true freedom possible for us. Your body and your blood make true freedom enjoyable. Your body and your blood make obedience to you in the scriptures possible. So, Holy Spirit, would you comfort those who mourn this morning? Would you convict those who are prideful this morning? Would you strengthen those who are weak this morning? Give courage to those who find themselves losing heart this morning. Let us stand on your word and proclaim your gospel to the world. Let us come forward and take your body and your blood with joy, I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Come when you're ready.